Welcome to the Aroma of Christ podcast, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am Ryan Brown, the pastor of the Fostoria Baptist Church, and the hope behind this podcast is to do nothing in any way to replace regular gathering among God's people. It is for the sake of mutual encouragement of one another through the singing and preaching ministry that we gather. But if you do happen to miss a week and want to keep up in Matthew, or if you want to re-listen to a sermon because it was particularly impactful or particularly confusing, this podcast is available to you. And so we continue on the Aroma of Christ sermons from the pulpit of Fostoria Baptist Church. Our scripture reading for this week is 2 Kings 4, 42 to 44, rather short reading this week. And it talks about the prophet Elisha, the only prophet that is explicitly mentioned as being anointed, who is two times better, at least in terms of number of miracles, than Elijah, the great prophet of the Lord. He has a particular moment in which there is just not enough food. There's a hundred men and only 20 loaves of bread. What's going to happen? His servant has no faith that something could happen here, but Elisha trusts in the Lord, and the Lord provides. The scripture reads, And there came a man from Baal Shalisha, and brought the man of God of bread of the firstfruits, twenty loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What? Should I set this before an hundred men? He said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and shall leave thereof. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof, according to the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Again, we turn today to Matthew 15, 29 to 39. You can turn there. We're coming in our Matthew series. We've been asking since 1354 to 58, whose son is Jesus? And we've had a little bit of an odd way of getting there. But now there was a climactic moment. The people of Nazarene may have said that Jesus is just the carpenter's son. But now this Canaanite woman has said, no, this is the son of David. Which starts to get at the full implications of who is his father. And thus, who is he? He's the royal heir to the throne. But of course, there's more to say about Jesus and who he is. So it does make sense that we keep going to continue to push towards an identification. Today we enter into some deja vu. Because right after the introduction to this narrative unit in chapter 1354 to the end of chapter 17, there was a healing of many based off of Jesus' compassion and then a feeding. And now we have much the same. That begins in Matthew 15, 29. And Jesus departed from thence, and came nigh unto the sea of Galilee, 
and went up into a mountain and sat down there. And great multitudes came unto him. Father, please do help us today. Help us to understand the entirety of this text before us and to rejoice in it. Rejoice in your grace abundantly on display and abundant for every possible need and for any possible person. Help us, Lord, to know you and to have you as our only hope. So, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've ever read J.R.R. Tolkien's primary works of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, or at least his most popular works, you may have noticed that they begin and end in the same place. But though they are there at the beginning and the end, things aren't quite the same. When Bilbo Baggins leaves uh, to his hobbit life in the Shire and goes out on his adventure, he goes through lots of different things, and obviously that changes him. But when he comes back to the Shire at the end of The Hobbit, it's largely unchanged, except for the fact that he walks in on his own funeral. But regardless, he and his change means that the Hobbit life that used to be so pleasant to him, that he was so excited about returning to, he no longer finds it to be a home. And so the beginning of The Lord of the Rings has him leaving the Shire, because he just can't be at home there. His nephew Frodo has a similar situation in The Lord of the Rings then. Leaves the Shire on a quest to save all of Middle-earth. And then he and his three Hobbit friends come back to the Shire, and this time the Shire is drastically different. The wicked wizard Saruman has taken over. And we see a change in each of the four hobbits because then, without their powerful wizard friend Gandalf, they have to figure out how to fight Saruman, and they do. And the Shire returns to largely what it was before. But Frodo doesn't find that to be home anymore. And so the Lord of the Rings ultimately ends with both he and Bilbo departing with elves and Gandalf to the Undying Lands to find a new home. And here, Tolkien has, by revisiting the same location at the beginning and end of both of these books, showed the change in his characters by subtleties, and even showed change in the Shire itself. And that's a lot of what Matthew is doing here, showing the change or lack of change in various people as they are coming in, and showing subtle changes in what the landscape of the things actually are. So that this isn't just deja vu to start another cycle leading to a more climactic identification. So it is that. But showing us what has changed now, as compassionate Jesus again heals and feeds the multitude. And we begin in verses 29 to 31, with the healing of many. Verse 29. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the Sea of Galilee, 
and went up into a mountain and sat down there. It says that Jesus departed from thence. It is referring back to where he was in verses 21 through 28, which in verse 21 was the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. He was in Gentile territory, indeed even Canaanite territory, and had interactions with a Canaanite woman. Now he's departing from there, and he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. And as he walks along the Sea of Galilee, he finds himself going up into a mountain and sitting down there. This is similar to what he did right before he spoke in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 1-2. It's also similar to what he did before, right after feeding of the 5,000 in Matthew 14, 22-23. Whether either of those is the thing he's trying to do here, we don't know. But what we do know is that if he's trying to get any rest, the crowds still come to him. There's still the reality of the situation of the crowd seeking this wonder worker, or perhaps speaking this great teacher. And so verse 30, we read this. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Like at the end of Matthew 14, it is by the initiative of the friends of those who are sick that they are brought before Jesus so that he can heal them. And they have great faith in his ability to heal because it doesn't seem to matter what the malady is, what the disease possibly is. They're bringing the lame. They're bringing the blind. They're bringing the dumb, that is those who cannot speak, the maimed, which is a similar category to the lame, but typically would refer to having certain uh, body parts that aren't even present. So you can't walk because you don't have a leg, not just because your legs aren't strong enough. And many others. And all of these, they have faith that he can heal. And indeed, verse 30 says he does heal them. His compassion is not an empty compassion that can do nothing, but one that is able to work in so many of the diseases that Adam's first sin brought into the world. And so it's really no wonder that in verse 31, the crowds are amazed. We read there, insomuch that the multitude wondered. When they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. I think it goes without saying that the mute don't just speak. The, the, the lame don't just walk. Those who cannot see do not just suddenly be able to see unless God is at work. 
So though these crowds obviously had some indication that Jesus would do it, after he has healed so much, the crowds then say, this is amazing. This is, in the full sense of the word, awesome. And then they glorify the God of Israel. They know that this man being able to do these things means he must have authority from God. And not just any God, the God of Israel. An expression that's only used here in Matthew. It's assumed that it's the God of Israel that's being served in every other context. But here he specifies they are glorifying Yahweh, the God of Israel. This man, Jesus, must be acting under his authority. But Matthew has not just given us this great reality and that great reason to trust Jesus' compassion and power to provide. He also gives us a further clue to the identification, as if we needed more reason to trust that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. He's picked out certain maladies that Jesus was healing that corresponded to visions of the Messianic age. In particular, turn with me to Isaiah 35. We looked at this passage a little bit in Matthew 11. There, John the Baptist was doubting about the identity of who Jesus is, even after having already declared him to be the Messiah. And in reference to this passage, Jesus told John's disciples to tell him that this is what he's seeing. Isaiah 35, verses 5 to 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears that sorry, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Did, did you see it? In Matthew fifteen thirty one, the dumb are speaking. So too, in verse 6 of Isaiah 35, the tongue of the dumb sing. The maimed are whole in verse 31 of Matthew 15. The lame man leaps as a heart. The lame are walking as well, and the blind are seeing, just at the beginning of Isaiah 35, 5. And the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Jesus is showing that he is the Messiah by doing what the Messiah is supposed to do, and even then some more. Healing whatever diseases are brought to him. The Messiah is clearly here. But this passage and Matthew's portrayal is not done yet. He's going to continue to show us Jesus' compassion and how he is powerful to provide. As we then move into verses 32 to 39, the feeding of the crowds. 
Read back with me for a second in Matthew 14. We'll start in verse 13. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Back in Matthew 15, Jesus has already healed the crowds, and now we're hearing about him having compassion. Having compassion because they don't have enough food. And so in verse 32, we read, Then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I will not send them away fasting, lest they faint in the way. Just as with the crowd in Matthew 14, Jesus is burning with compassion. It's coming from the deepest part of his, of his body, which for the Greek-speaking world was the bowels, but for us would be the heart. It's coming from there, burning with compassion. And he says it's because they've been with him three days and now have nothing to eat. Now, it is possible they had food when they came. We don't really know. But at this point in time, they've been with him three days, and they're not concerned about their own food. They seem to have understood something about Deuteronomy 8.3, that reality that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, and in this instance in particular, the mouth of Jesus. But Jesus knows their danger. If he's to send them away without feeding them first, he says they would faint in the way. There's a possibility that some would even die. The compassionate king of kings is not making any exaggerations. Their situation is tragic and dire. And so Jesus tells this to his disciples, and he offers no solution. It's almost as if he hopes that the Shire is different. That they, in this situation, can have the confidence to be able to say, well, you can provide the food. but rather more like Elisha's servant in our scripture reading, they simply ask, how? How could we work through this? So verses 33 to 34 say this. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness as to fill so great a multitude? And Jesus saith unto them, 
How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven, and a few little fishes. The disciples, without blinking an eye, and with no regard for Jesus' miracles of healing or his miracles of providing food for over 5,000 people with that is actually suitable for less than 10, ask how should we find so much bread in the wilderness so as to fill this whole multitude that they look at and can't even begin to count? They show a reality of having a vast capacity for unbelief. And realistically speaking, so do we. It may not always be related to the provision of food for us. Sometimes it can be related to the provision of our own forgiveness that Christ's blood would really be enough. Such, indeed, was the state of my heart this morning, that as I was doing last-minute prep, I was crying, trying to think through how I could still stand forgiven, trying to know that Though God's forgiven me, I need to be able to move past the sin as well. And indeed, my plan, my plan for the opening of worship this morning was at first Judges 5, to look at how wonderful and awesome God was and is. But as I was sitting there, I was just saying, my heart today needs a reminder that my sin is as far as the east is from the west. And I imagine there are others who do as well. And so I, I looked up the, the east from the west in Google to find the passage, chose the selection from the psalm to read, and got to a point of reminding myself that I can trust God to provide for both my temporal needs and for my eternity. His provision is abundant and enough. Our vast capacity for unbelief can be pushed against. And though we too are dull disciples, hard of learning, he is still merciful and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Let us push to be reminded of God's grace, compassion, and his abundant provision that he cares for us. At this point, verses 35 to 38, read almost as a word-for-word -word repetition of Matthew 14, 19 through 21. There are a few exceptions. 
It's the same ideas, the same sequence, the same points being presented. Realistically, the same ridiculousness. Though less ridiculous, because we know Jesus is able to provide, still as ridiculous in the actual moment. In verses 35 to 36, this looks as the king's commanding. Jesus telling the people and the disciples what to do. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and break them. And gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. The seven loaves and two fish. And the very realistic question from at least the rational mind of where would you find bread to fill so great a crowd? Jesus commands the multitude to sit down on the ground. But here there's not grass like there was in Matthew 14, but the idea is still there. Sit down on the ground. Jesus, what, what are you doing? What's your command to have them sit down on the ground? You, they need to be fed. You don't have the food. What are you doing? And he keeps going. And he took the seven loaves and the fishes. Jesus, that's just going to go to like half the front row, if that. There's not enough to go around. Even if everyone took a crumb, not everyone would get anything. And he gave thanks. Jesus, you're not hosting a meal right now. There's a, a multitude we can see that is many, many thousands. There's no way you could feed this crowd with seven loaves. And he break them and gave them to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And the naturalistic mind still wants to say, look, Jesus, I know that this is the same sequence you used in Matthew 14. I know this is the same sequence you will use in the Lord's Supper and that that is true across every account of them within the Gospels. But this is too much. Lightning never strikes the same place twice. What exactly are you hoping to accomplish? Verse 37. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And they that did eat were 4,000 men, beside women and children. I guess that's what he was trying, and indeed did, accomplish. Seven loaves and a few fish. And they did all eat. And it wasn't just that they each got a crumb, but no, they all ate and were filled. They ate sufficiently. They ate till they were filled up. And then the disciples were able to take of the broken pieces of the leftover filled and fill seven baskets. Now, it was 12 baskets in the feeding of the 5,000. 
But seven baskets is still an abundant miracle, given that there wasn't enough food to go around. And they that did eat were 4,000 men, beside women and children. Likely looking at a crowd of over 10,000 people. And Jesus fed them all with seven loaves and a few fish. Because he's not limited by what we can see, not limited by the physical containers of what is there, not limited by the lack of provision. So obviously there's a difference in wording with the numbers of baskets, the numbers of bread, loaves of bread, and the number of people that are served. There's also a difference that's interesting in regard to what word is used for baskets. In chapter 14, the word is a word used for basket that is exclusively used among baskets for Jewish people. Only Jews used those baskets, and that word only applied to those baskets. But here, the word is a basket that was used more broadly by both Jews and Gentiles. And that same distinction carries over when Jesus is appealing to these two feeding accounts in Matthew 16, 9 and 10. So maybe a hint of something more is going on. But regardless, there's plenty of leftovers. God's provision is abundant, both for our material needs and for what this miracle truly points to, Jesus' blood on the cross, the Last Supper that uses the same sequence and is ultimately left. It's enough for any. Then the text concludes in verse 39. And he sent away the multitudes and took ship and came into the coasts of Magdala. A shorter passage of sending away than what was true in Matthew 14, 22 to 23. And he does eventually send the people away, seemingly without any difficulty. And he gets into a ship. And then he goes into Magdala, of which we know very little. But since 16.1 begins with the Pharisees coming to him, Magdala must be within the people of Israel in Israelite territory. That is the last subtle hint that the Shire may be very different this time. Although a lot of the circumstances look to be the same, Matthew has penned it such that it's different. Jesus gets on a boat to enter Israelite territory from here, but when leaving Canaanite territory, he walked. When he did all of the healings that he did, they glorify not just God, but the God of Israel. Something that would make sense if we were clarifying that Gentiles were worshiping the God of Israel and not their own gods. They pick up baskets that would have been used either by Jews or Gentiles. And none of that is exactly definitive, but all of it together points to a reality that this is a Gentile context. 
that the healings and feeding is not just a repetition of the same thing, but a repetition of the same thing, not in Israel, but in Gentile territories. To even directly indicate that the Canaanite woman was not alone as being a dog who receives food. But it's time to feed the dogs as a whole. Jesus' compassion and ability to provide is not Jewish exclusive, but to all. That is true, regardless of whether it is exactly the right interpretation here. And I obviously believe it is. But the point of this passage is clear, regardless of that particular element. Jesus' provision is enough. Not just that he was able to provide for healing, not just that he was able to provide for food for this multitude of thousands of people, but that there is room at the cross for more. That we as Christians don't have to doubt whether our sins are still being counted against us. We can stand forgiven. We can stand loved. We can stand with the confidence that there is no more condemnation for us because we are in Christ Jesus and all of our condemnation was laid upon him. So we can live not feeling a need to please God, not feeling a need to placate his anger because it is already gone, but obeying him out of love for what he has done, serving him and desiring to be with him simply because he is ours and we are his. If you don't know that reality today, it can be today that you do. Where you can see that Christ died to bear your sin. That there's still room at that cross for as many as will come. The provision is abundant. There's food left over. Come and eat. Talk to me to get more understanding Talk to another member here who would love to tell you the gospel and show you how you can have this for yourself. To be able to have the beautiful, beautiful reality that he does not deal with us after our sin, nor reward us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Father, thank you. The provision is abundant, and it is not exclusive to the Jewish people. Jesus, you sent to be the Jewish Messiah for all nations. And we ask that you would continue to help us to know that once saved, we stand saved forever. 
with no more condemnation that is able to be given to us because you would be the one to condemn, but you are the one who sent Christ Jesus and he is the one who died and was risen for us. Help us to live in light of that joy and help us to rejoice in your name evermore. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Aroma for Christ, sermons from the pulpit of the Fostoria Baptist Church. Do you remember 2 Corinthians 2, 15-16? For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? <laughs>